Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I know you're frightened. I know you're anxious. I know this time can be so terribly difficult. And maybe you're housebound with a hijackal. Maybe you're having to live 24-7 with the person you'd least like to be confined with. We're going to talk today with a scientist, the real word. We're going to talk with David Vigorist, his Dr. David Vigorist, and we're going to get the real word on what's happening in our world and what you need to know about it. So stay tuned. Welcome to Save Your Sanity Podcast. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. Are you living with the chaos, confusion, and uncertainty that a toxic person loves to create? Is a partner, parent, ex, sibling, child, or coworker causing you to second-guess yourself? That can be crazy-making. I'm here to help you save your sanity. So let's get down to it and figure some things out now. Stay tuned. Welcome to Save Your Sanity. If you're joining us for the first time, so glad you found us. And if you're returning, I'm glad you found value and came back. Please feel free to share this podcast with your friends. There are so many people who are isolated and marginalized and think they're the only ones going through this, right? So you can be the one who shares things with you. And today we're going to have quite a different episode. Because we're not going to be talking only about hijackals. We're going to talk about the hijackal virus that is hijacking our lives right now. And I'm so delighted to welcome you to the program, David. Thank you so much for uh, for letting me be here with you today. Well, it's exciting to me to have the real word from the scientific community. I want everybody to know this is Dr. David Vigorist. He's the president and chief scientific officer for ZDX Health, an advanced molecular diagnostics company specializing, get this, in solutions for infectious diseases and prevention medicine. And he has so many credentials. He also maintains an adjunct assistant professor position at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in the Department of Neurological Science Surgery. And he's a clinical assistant professor at the University of Maryland Eastern Shore School of Pharmacy. So you've got the definitive word on what's going on here. How much fear do you think is logical at this time? Well, I mean, there's a lot of people worried about this. This is a significant, um, a significant pandemic, something we've never experienced before. So, you know, in that, in that regard, people are not sure how to behave, not sure what to do, not sure um, how to take the information that's been provided by our government and, and our other um, leaders. So, you know, I've seen a substantial number of people very worried, very scared, unsure of where their place is in, in this current pandemic. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's scary for a lot of people, especially those that have, you know, some conditions that might pre-exist them to, you know, to more severe symptoms. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm one of those people. So the only thing that's concerning me is what happens when I run out of uh, fresh vegetables and fruit? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but I will find a way. Um, but 
you know, if we don't have good information, if we don't have reliable information, reliable scientific factual information, we can go even more fearful. And so tell us what the real deal is here. What do you know about the coronavirus, the pandemic, the timing? Tell us what you know. What's the latest word? Well, the, the, the timing of this falls you know, towards the tail end of our respiratory season, right? So we've got a lot of, a lot of uncertain symptoms. So you know, folks are still going through influenza. They're still having colds. That's creating a lot more stress and anxiety because they automatically assume that when they have a cough or a sniffle that it's going to be a coronavirus. Coronaviruses are not new to humans. We've, we've been exposed to them for a significant amount of time. This one, however, is coming from an animal reservoir. And when that happens, that animal is fairly in balance with this, with this pathogen. And we are very much out of balance with, that pathogen, with this pathogen. So it's running through the population very quickly. What does it mean, David, to be balanced with a pathogen? Well, in nature, you know, viruses are constantly um, in, in flux with, with a host. And in this case, this coronavirus likely came from a bat. And in that bat, it likely did not have any symptomology whatsoever. The, the virus goes through its life cycle in the bat, passes to another bat, passes to another bat, and very rarely causes any symptoms in that animal. And that's partly because it's become balanced or it's in kind of a homeostasis with the host. We're a brand new host. And as such, we don't have natural immunity to it. We don't have any defenses because we've not encountered this virus before. So these viruses tend, when they get into a new host, whether it's humans or another animal, tend to go very much overboard because there are no checks and balances to control them. And that's what we're experiencing right now is a brand new virus to the human population. It's going through very rapidly. It's highly transmissible. That's the other issue that we're dealing with is this has a, this has a very rapid replication. And as such, it's very easy to spread through, vi- through droplets, through coughs, through surface contact. So it, mm-hmm. it's an entirely new, new experience for many people, although we go through these kinds of epidemics very frequently. We just forget. Yes, and we forget that we respond differently each time. Like I've heard some people comparing it to the HN, our H1N1 virus, as that was what was previously, and we didn't have a shutdown. We didn't have this level of fear. We had concern. We had information, but it didn't feel so personal. What do you think made that difference? I think we, we've become accustomed to influenza as not being too terribly problem, problematic or troublesome. Even though we told people this is a brand new influenza virus, it's not been encountered by humans before. That, that 2009 outbreak infected 60 million people and, and caused the death of almost 300,000 people. You know, that, we sort of went about our business thinking, well, it's just the flu. You know, we get flu all the time. It's not a big deal. Very few people had ever had ever heard of coronavirus, even though every year when we have a cold or you know cold like symptoms, coronavirus is likely one of the primary suspects. But those four that have been with us for the last sixty years or so are very much in balance with us. They don't cause us too much too much um, illness. 
So I, I think the big difference here is that we're accustomed to sort of hearing about flu every year and we've sort of just taken it out of the, you know, out of our mind as a dangerous organism. And this is something brand new. So it's creating a lot more mystery. It's creating a lot more fear about an unknown. Mm-hmm. Does coronavirus um, and the uh, H1N1 virus, do they have a, did they have a similar rate of uh, replication? They're both fairly fairly rapid replicating viruses. The difference is going to be how easily they can transmit from one person to another. Uh, this virus seems to be very good at transmitting from person to person. And flu, that particular variant of flu, uh, transmitted easily among people, but it wasn't quite as fast or as efficient as, as this coronavirus is. And how about staying on surfaces and remaining alive? Were they similar in that regard? Flu doesn't have quite as long, quite as much longevity on surfaces. Uh, these viruses have an envelope, so they have a like a fatty envelope around them. That makes them susceptible to environmental conditions, whether it's heat or, or detergents or soaps. Um, this virus seems to be a little more stable on surfaces, especially things like plastics and stainless steel. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a very a very long lifespan on not lifespan, but doesn't have a very long viability on cardboard and those kinds of things that are more porous and might draw some of the moisture out of them. So, you know, it's similar in many respects. You know, you, you want to try to wipe surfaces down even with the flu because those droplets are, are laden with virus. Right. Well, I think this is really important information because we are getting conflicting information about surfaces. <laughs> um, and, you know, heavens, I may not want to to buy into the billions of dollars that Jeff Bezos makes, but my goodness, he's making my life awfully easy these days. <laughs> so I'm leaving his cardboard outside for three hours before I go near it. And then I put my gloves on and I use my scissors and I open the box outside. Then I throw the box away. Then I come in and wash my gloves and take the items off, out of the thing and then I wash my gloves again <laughs> and then <clears throat> you know I have antibacterial and then I feel like I can I can uh, let that pro- those products sit for a while and they'll be fine but it's very important to understand that transmission because we get the mail and people could be afraid of getting the mail or getting these packages and we need to be informed about what's real because there's a lot of scaremongering out there. And then there's this other seemingly incredible side that seems to give the impression that we as regular humans can somehow direct this virus to tell it how long it's going to live. <laughs> and, and that kind of information is really not helpful to us. I'm really sorry to see Dr. Fauci seemingly getting more and more exhausted looking, of course, and every appearance that he has, but, oh, we need him and we need people like you. So I want to remind everybody, I'm talking to Dr. David Vigorist. He is the person in the know about all of this. As I said earlier, he is a chief scientific officer at a molecular diagnostic company, and it specializes in infectious diseases and prevention. So we're talking about the real information here. So if somebody stays in and they're doing the precautions maybe that I, I was talking about, you know, being careful of what you bring into the house, 
What can they do if they have to go out and they have to procure their groceries? What is the best protocol in your your idea? Being very, very cognizant of how close people are to you. Um, Again, just like you're being very cautious about picking up boxes, you know, wash your hands frequently. If you have sanitizer, use them frequently while you're going to the store. Wipe down any surfaces that your hands are touching, like the cart or the the handles of the baskets. I'm just being very watchful about the people around me, trying to keep some level of of distance, you know, six or 10 feet. Um, Watchful for people, watchful and very aware of people who are maybe coughing or sneezing, trying to avoid those kinds of things. It's back to the social distancing. It does, it does do a tremendous amount of good to keep some space between us and just be really aware. I mean, I think maybe we're going to get to be much more aware of our surroundings when you know, not so long ago, we were very oblivious to what's going on around us. Now we're hyper aware. Well, yes, and being aware of the physics of the whole thing. I mean, if a droplet comes out of your mouth, the physics of it are it has to drop, I mean, (laughs) eventually. So it may nebulize, of course. Uh, Some of them do, I understand. But that social distancing is to give it the opportunity to drop. And that's just a great way to visualize what's going on that you sent me something and it fell down between us because there was enough space for it, which is of course, one of the reasons they tell us to leave our shoes outside. (laughs) But is that an important precaution is to change your shoes when you come in and put your clothes in the, in the washer? It would be wise, you know, just, just to make sure that any potential exposure that you might've had while you were out and about, is is eliminated you know keeping the shoes outside taking the jacket or something off maybe washing it if you were around a lot of people shortly Mm -hmm. come back in any of those kinds of measures where you can distance yourself from the exposures that you may have had uh, Mm -hmm. is, is a smart idea especially for those that might have some risk factors i was talking with a client the other day and they were very very anxious And they said, you know, I live alone and I haven't been out of the house, but remembering to wash my hands every 20 minutes is really hard. And I said, what? Why are you washing your hands every 20 minutes? You're in your own environment. I mean, you're in your own ecosystem. You don't have to wash your hands every 20 minutes. I think maybe there are things that are being said that are not being defined. What would you say about that advice I gave my client? That's exactly right. If they haven't had an exposure and they've been in their own environment, you know, they're not exposed to anything, you know, other than what they have been around, you know, all day and, you know, night and days and days previous, especially if they haven't been outside. We've encountered a number of folks in our neighborhood who are somewhat similar, right? They've, they've had a significant amount of fear about this, so they've stayed home. And they may have someone who goes to the store and shops for them and brings those groceries to them. But if they're by themselves or if they're with their own family and the family has not had any exposure outside, you know, just think, thinking about, well, I haven't had an exposure. It's good to be clean. You know, washing your hands frequently is never a bad thing. But to be habitual about it in the absence of the exposure might be taking things just, just a little too far and taking it more, maybe more literally than, than was originally intended. Well, that's where I think we're making a mistake in the public health thing, because we're not defining it or refining it enough to say, but if you haven't been out, 
if you've been living in your own ecosystem, you haven't brought anything in that you have to be washing off. I mean, it's certainly we all are wise, as you say, to wash our hands frequently. It's just a good idea. But this uh, protocol of every 20 minutes and do this and do that, that's if you've come in and there's a potential you've brought something with you. So we want to allay people's fears that if they're staying home, they don't have to be washing their hands every 20 minutes. <clears throat> so important. So why do you think this coronavirus is is coming to the attention as a pandemic when previously we have not even had this kind of coverage for H1N1 or other things that, you know, 300,000 deaths is nothing to sneeze at, no pun intended. <laughs> but, you know, we're not approaching that right now, but the forecasts are for sure. Why do you think this particular one is causing this huge fear and consuming all of our attention? It's, it's had a lot of media exposure. And the media exposure that first came out of China was very, very graphic. Right, you saw people who were being arrested. You saw people in full Tyvek suits, head to head, you know, head to, to toe suits, respirators. It looked like a very scary um, event that was happening. So you see those kinds of images, and you think, well, this this must be this must be really bad if if we're locking down cities and and physically quarantining people into the buildings, and then it gets out of that local, and it gets into the larger country, and then it starts to migrate outside. And then you hear people say, oh, I told you so. I told you this was going to happen. We've had a number of people who have come out and said, I've been telling you for years that there was going to be a big pandemic that was going to be the next apocalypse. Right. So we've had a lot of people coming forth with very scary images, uh, both you know, verbal images and visual things where it looks frightening to people. And when it starts to move from country to country, and then you start to highlight the number of deaths, and that's the lead in the, in the news is 200 people died last night. You know, 1,000 people have died here. You make it into a situation where everyone just has almost constant fear and anxiety about it. What do you think the benefit of that is? Do you think it's making us just aware? Do you think it's making us overly cautious? Is it putting us into a fear situation, particularly in our country where we're supposed to believe that someone's going to save us? Mm -hmm. We're, we're, um, it's going to be a difficult thing to see how this, how this evolves in, in the near future here. We're, um, and, and on, you know, on one hand, I think it's good to be aware that these pandemics can happen and, and how they happen and, and explaining that in a very, you know, clear way, these pandemics in this particular uh, occurrence and in the H1N1 also were zoonotic infections. They came from animals. Mm -hmm. And it, the way we interact with the environment and those animals that can lead to these kinds of, of outbreaks. And I think we're going to get some better awareness on how to contain it early. And hopefully we get smart enough when someone says we have to pay attention that we start to pay attention. You know, we've had a lot of people who said, well, it's not that big a deal. I'm not going to, you know, there were some, some college-age kids down in Florida. A number of them got sick because they continued to go to spring break, even though they were told, you know, you, you should not be around people right, right. now. But I think it's going to be a number of things. We're going to get more aware. Hopefully we get a little smarter about listening to advice, the right kind of advice. 
and, and we become a little more aware. And, you know, the, the benefit of this in a lot of, a lot of cases I've noticed here in our neighborhood is families are walking together and they're interacting more. So it's bringing the family back together a little bit, right? They're all, they're all in little pockets. I think that's great. You know, as I said earlier, I just did uh, my last podcast on housebound with a hijackal. I mean, if you're you're with someone who's verbally, uh, emotionally, physically, sexually abusive, this is a really, really hard time to say stay home because there you are. So in my last podcast, I gave people 10 basic truths that you have to accept if you're in that situation because you can't poke hijackles and hope anything good is going to happen. But we are also seeing a rise in the number of domestic violence cases because we, when we have a raised anxiety levels, raised stress levels. We have people who are already living in chronic stress, maybe with someone who's emotionally abusive. And so everybody's angry. Everybody feels powerless in the face of a pandemic. And so that level of unnamed powerlessness can come into blaming behavior. It's, everybody's dancing on everybody's last nerve, aren't they? Yes, they are. Yeah, yeah, it's really difficult. So I want to ask a question about this uh, balancing in the, you know, if you take the bat situation and, and, you know, we all have things that live on us, live with us, live within us that don't bother us. They're just kind of part of the hosting process and, and they, they pass and move on and, and we didn't even know it really happened. But in the research world, David, do they actually have researched things that would have previously focused on that bat and the possibility of what is in balance for them being out of balance for humans and what we might do about it? Or is this a wake up call? It, there's, there's been research on this in the past, understanding the natural tropism and host of the organism has, has been an ongoing, you know, body of, of work. Where where we've not quite learned a lesson yet is, and in this particular case, and it happens around the world. I'm not necessarily picking on China, but that's where this that's where this came from. Around the world, there are occasions when people will capture wild animals, and they're a food source. So in China, there are these wet markets, and there are a number of different species of animals that are all co co housed together, and that allows for this recombination, this movement back and forth of viruses from one animal to another one that may not be the natural host, but supports replication. And then we introduce ourselves in the middle of that. That's, that's happened countless times. And, you know, so we, we've, we've understood that from a research perspective for a number of years, going back maybe as far back as the 1918 flu outbreak, we knew that these kinds of things happened. So for a hundred years, we knew that organisms can come from wildlife can come into us and serve as as a as a brand new we we serve as a brand new host mm -hmm. but so we've known about it it's not a new thing but we need to be more aware about it and just a couple of days ago I, I saw that china has actually outlawed any wild meat consumption so they're they're trying now after many many years of of counsel that that's not a good idea and, and even in the rest of the world africa has kind of a similar sort of situation where bushmeat is common we don't understand what all the organisms that exist in those in those wildlife or in that environment. So it's been around, but I think we're starting to get a little bit more acuity to 
we have to pay attention to what we're doing uh, a little bit more and how we're you know, co-housing these animals together. Yes, I think that's a very real and solvable problem right there is once you recognize this is not a good idea, you can simply stop doing it. But for other situations, that's not not the case. I wondered if there's some kind of similarity between the fact that we never used to hear about Lyme disease and then people were having symptoms after symptoms and we were attributing it to other things. And then in the last 20 years, we seem to have become wise to the potential for Lyme disease. Is there some similarity in that? There, there, there will be. We're, I think as we've seen more of these zoonotic infections come out, uh, come out of you know different um, ecosystems. We get a little, little bit more aware of it. You know, people I think shy away from some of the science, and they don't pay attention and listen and build upon each one of those occurrences. And with Lyme disease, it took, like you say, it took 20 years, it took 30 years to to realize that it wasn't just arthritis; it was an infection that elicited the arthritis. Right. So. slowly we I think slowly getting there this is a kind of event that might help accelerate that that um, uptake of information and awareness like oh there are other causes you know in my life I've been very fortunate because I was raised by near my godparents who were very interested in health and they they were in their mid-50s when I was born so they were interested in alternative medicine and they raised their own vegetables organically and all of that so I've always had this great interest and I used to own a, a health and yoga retreat center on Vancouver Island in Canada so I've always had this great interest and so when I, I follow these things and I notice that my clients which are people who have been either raised by or in a relationship with toxic people, those with diagnosed or undiagnosed personality disorders, we see a much greater incidence of autoimmune situations because they're living in this chronic stress and anxiety all the time. They're, if we want to use a metaphor, they're always inflamed, right? So, so there are things going on that we can do about that aside from the fact that we wake up and say, your body is having a response to something that is not a pathogen. It is responding to something that is in your environment and it's entirely human. <laughs> and and yes, it doesn't happen to everybody. But I, you know, I was interested in the research of Gabar Mate. I don't know if you know Dr. Mate in Canada, but he did some excessive research and what he learned in one of his studies, a small study, but significant, he learned that following women for nine years, I think it was nine years, um, I could be wrong, but he followed them and found that women who lived with chronic stress and anxiety, now I'm extrapolating it to my hijackals, but it could be any chronic stress and anxiety, were nine times more likely to develop breast cancer. Hmm. Right? Chronic stress and anxiety. Now we've seen in my anecdotal observation, (laughs) uh, I remember when probably... 30 years ago, I started in my practice seeing people with this 
unnamed aches and pains. And when you touched their skin, it hurt and there was nothing supposedly wrong with the skin or the underlying tissue. And see that morph into an understanding of Epstein-Barr, fibromyalgia, things that had a name. And in the beginning, it was all in your head right? (laughs) Then people were telling you, you know, if you just had less stress and anxiety, but they didn't look at the causes of the stress and anxiety. So this kind of historical perspective of it shows up and then we say, oh, it's nothing or it's your fault or you're, you're doing things wrongly. And then we find out, no, actually there are things in the environment, whether or not they're human or, or otherwise, um, that are actually exacerbating these things. And it's very much as a a time thing, it seems, before people are willing to entertain the idea that there may be a cause and effect. What do you think? I agree. Yeah, it does take time for for that, that idea to evolve and for people to come to realize that there is an underlying precipitate precipitator of, of this right so i spend a lot of time in inflammation as well so I, I i can see that inflammation can come from you know an external source like a microbe or come from an internal source like just being chronically stressed and stressed and and, and tired and you know just not having a, a really good um a really good healthy happy foundation well, some things, some things suppressing your immune system, right. and and when you're unhappy, and when you're in anxiety, and when your shoulders are up around your earlobes, and you're hypervigilant, <laughs> and you're overproducing fight or flight hormones and things, you know, it's a system. Something's going to happen. <laughs> right. Yeah. There has to be a response to all that. Yeah. It's- so what would you say, oh, I know we could talk for a very long time, but what would you say is our best preparation for this pandemic and for any future? What changes do we need to make? I, I think we need to be more aware of, of the kinds of interactions we have with the environment and identify things like this that have come from an animal source, an environmental source. This happens frequently, and we seem to have a very short-term memory when it, when it happens. Right? We need to to put that more into a perspective that if we keep the same behaviors, we're going to have the same sorts of events occurring with us. So if we can start to understand better how the ecology of pathogens and, and how they interact with us and the kinds of behaviors that we elicit to, to make those kinds of things happen, we can probably be better prepared in the future. You know, mm-hmm. the Chinese are doing a good job by, by eliminating these markets because we know that they are a definite source. The same sort of conversations have happened elsewhere in Asia and in Africa and South America and all over the world. That's just the nature of culture sometimes is you eat what you catch, you eat what you find, you eat what's available. But entering into those ecosystems, we have to understand the consequences of doing that. You know, we don't sometimes think about what might happen to us when we enter into that new environment. I remember when I went to the market in Bangkok and I could not believe what my eyes saw and my nose smelled. I could not believe it. Some of it was lovely. Some of it was far less than lovely. And some of it was downright scary. Mm -hmm. You're selling those things. How long have they been there? Uh, They're still alive. How long have they been dead? I mean, it was just like amazing. But of course, 
It's like me going into a culture that has a different water system. I'm, I am going to be terribly susceptible to it and other people are used to it. You know, it's become balanced as you say within them. And so this is vital information. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. My guest is Dr. David Vigorist. And he has great information for you. I'm going to put his website in the show notes because you will need to know how to spell it. I will tell you what it is right now for those of you who are sitting at your computer. It is cisstrategicbiosciences.com. And that's S-Y-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-C biosciences, plural. And it'll be in the show notes. You're also going to be able to hear us on on Facebook Live and YouTube Live today. And so look at the YouTube channel, my YouTube channel for Relationship Help. You will find another conversation that Dr. Vigorist and I will have. In the meantime, take really good care of yourself because you matter and stay safe. This is a very important thing for you to do. Thank you for joining me on the Save Your Sanity podcast today. I hope you've had some new insights, some ideas and strategies to help you gain clarity and confidence for moving forward toward greater emotional health and safety. You deserve that, and so do your children. If you found value here and would like to support this podcast with a dollar or five each month, please do so at patreon.com slash saveyoursanity. Learn more about how to work with me via video conference, join my optimized circles, or subscribe to this podcast on my YouTube channel at my website, transformingrelationship.com. Talk soon.